What's up, Beardos? This is Sandy Swiss with Chicago Vegan Mania, and this is episode 155 of the Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to don't be a jerk. Don't really answer your question first. I not answer your question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talk about beards. Beard, beard, beard. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. And you can always reach us by emailing thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to be answering your questions live in Chicago with Vegan Warrior Princess's Attack. That's right, baby. We just got back from Chicago, and I am so stoked on how this went, Paul. Me too. I I think it could not have gone any better. I loved the collaboration. It was great. It was wonderful. Thank you to everyone that that came out and and listened to us and watched us because I was so nervous. Andy, I don't think I told you this, but I'm because someone was filming the someone was filming it and they're going to put it up on YouTube or something. And I'm worried th- about the fact that I think you could see like under the table because i think i was just like fidgeting with my hands the entire time because i was so nervous <laughs> <laughs> well now people will know to look for it now that you pointed it <laughs> oh, out shoot. So. <laughs> oh shucks <laughs> yeah so that's gonna be the majority of our show we're just gonna be playing this live recording of this joint podcast that we did with callie nicole but we're gonna do we're gonna do a little of our usual thing here we got a little bit of food talk for you a couple of announcements to make so actually only one announcement to make paul <laughs> And that is that our live, our next live podcast is coming up in Atlanta at the Atlanta Veg Fest, and that's going to be November tenth time TBA. But uh, I don't know. I, I think this this live podcast that we just did has given us a little insight into how we might shape that one. So uh, should be should be a fun time. Yeah, look out for me being real nervous at that one too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends if there's cameras or not. Oh no. <laughs> I'm going to put a camera directly under the table just to watch your <laughs> fidgeting hands the entire time. Definitely. Please come out to that if you're able to. We'd love to We'd love to, to talk at you and maybe talk with you and meet you. <laughs> that was an awkward way of saying that. Well, speaking of meeting people, Paul, we met so many new Beardos, so many first-time Beardos at the table at Chicago Vegan Mania. So we're going to give them a quick shout out right now. It's it's a lot of people, which is really exciting to me. So here we go. Rapid fire succession. Thank you to Becca. Tori. Danny. Sabrina. Dana. Eric. Ava. Molly. Nathaniel. Courtney. Apple. Dave. Madeline. Ryan. Sarah. Brittany. Ellen. And Josh. And you know what, Paul? Josh gave us an in-person donation. Mm-hmm. So that was very, mm-hmm. very kind. And so did John. And we got a very, very generous in-person donation from Shell as well. So thank you to everyone that stopped by and especially to Josh, John and Shell. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was really cool. Like, Andy, I know this is the norm for you because you're always at these events and you're always meeting all the beardos. But, you know, it was awesome. It was really cool to meet to meet so many cool and wonderful and awesome people. So thank you all for stopping by. Sorry, I haven't built up the courage to say Beardo, what's up yet? <laughs> Paul, once you start to say it, it just flows. It just feels natural. It's great. So, Andy, before we get into the bulk of the episode, the Gardein meat of the episode, 
let's talk about some other <laughs> wonderful foods. What have you been eating? Well, you know, a lot of the places that I had in Chicago, it was a very quick trip. I know it was an extremely quick trip for you with less than 24 hours there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think the only food you ate was from Chicago Vegan Mania. That is true. But most of the food that I ate was also stuff that I had before. So I'm actually going to give a shout out to a place that I went to on my drive away from Chicago towards Austin, where I am right now. And I got to make a very, very quick stop in St. Louis for Bon Mi So Number One. Now, Paul, you know, you know, I love a good Bon Mi. <laughs> I also know you love a good restaurant with a number. In it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if they say they're number one, they have to be right. <laughs> But unfortunately, Paul, you know, I'm, I am also often disappointed by by Bon Mi's when it's sort of like the, the whitewash thing that you're getting from certain vegan restaurants. So a lot of people will ask me, what is what is your favorite Bon Mi? You love them so much, but you're so often disappointed by so many restaurants. Do you have one that you actually love? And the answer is yes. And the answer is the Bon Mi from Bon Mi So Number One in St. Louis that some some friends brought me to once, and I have just truly fallen in love. They have plenty of clearly marked vegan options on the menu, and so I say the thing to get is the Joe B sandwich, and that is it's like a vegan beef, some spicy marinated beef with sautéed onions, pickled carrot daikon relish, and then they top it with crushed peanuts. And cilantro, if that's your if that's your jam, <laughs> if you're one of those, if you're one of those people, Paul, it is just phenomenal. It is so flavorful. It is everything about it is great. The the crunch from the peanuts, it's it's ah, it's just so good. I'm almost at a loss for words, uh, and I think that everyone should check this place out. Also, in their window, they have a sign that advertises uh, like the best spring rolls in St. Louis. Mm -hmm, and guess mm -hmm. what? I have not had every spring roll in St. Louis, but I'm going to go ahead and say that that is also not a lie because Ooh. they have these fried mung bean spring rolls that are just out of this world good. They are so good. Everything this place does, everything I've had from them is truly fantastic. So just wanted to give them give them a little shout out. Bon Miso number one in St. Louis. This is an all vegan place? Not all vegan. They okay. just have a couple vegan options on the menu. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. I... I'm jealous. <laughs> it's hard for me to envision a situation in which a scenario in which you will be going to St. Louis anytime, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, maybe, maybe it'll happen. There's a, there's a Bonmi place actually near campus called Bonmi Boy, which is also a great name. And a, a, <laughs> allegedly they have a vegan Bonmi there. So I got to check that out. All right. Well, I'll have to come check that out. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with that said, that brings us to this live episode. And this is one where we decided that we were going to do a like a Q&A kind of episode, sort of like a mini mailbag episode. And each podcast brought a few questions to the table that we thought would be fun to have all four of us discussing. Again, we we're just so happy with how this went. I, you know, we always love collaborating with with Nicole and Callie. I, I, I'm awesome. I'm just like in awe of their insight on so many of these issues. There's so many times when when they'd be answering a question and I'd just be sitting there going, uh-huh, uh-huh. And people, <laughs> then they'd turn to me for a response and be like, no, that sounds great. That's yeah. really good. So yeah. I don't know. It's always such a pleasure to work with them. And they've, they've become such great such great friends and activists over the years. So it's, it's just such a joy. And we're really hoping that we can bring this joint collab podcast to future events. So any organizers mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. there, if you feel like you want to wrangle the schedules of four very busy people and get <laughs> us to your veg fest, it's almost—it's like pretty monumental that all four of us could be in the same place at the same time. It was, it was, it was awesome. No, it was really great. I'm 
I'm very appreciative that it was able to to come to fruition. And yeah, Paul, you you had so many struggles <laughs> in your travels to get oh, to boy. and from Chicago. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. So with that said, we now present to you our live collaboration episode with Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack from Chicago Vegan Media. survive the holidays and other vegan questions with Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack and the Bearded Vegans. Well, thank you all so much. Is this on? <laughs> Hello. 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 Um, anyway, I'm pretty loud, so maybe I don't need my mic, but thank you all so much for the very warm welcome. We are super excited to be here in Chicago. This is Nicole and my first time here, so we have been just loving all the food. And I know the Bearded Vegans are very excited to be here as well. Just for clarification's sake, we are the Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack Podcast. <laughs> they are the Bearded Vegans. <laughs> I know some of you might have been wondering. <laughs> I'm Callie. I'm Nicole. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. <laughs> and this is the live episode of the Vegan Warrior Princess Attack and Bearded Vegans podcast at Chicago Vegan Mania, which we are recording for our audiences to listen to later. So thank you so much. <laughs> we are so excited to do this topic today. We decided to mix it up and do something a little bit different and do an advice type session. And uh, we just thought it would be a great way for those of you who don't know us yet to kind of get to know us, find out what our shows are about. The Bearded Vegans do mailbag episodes where they answer listener questions on every 10th episode. And then Nicole and I love to do advice episodes as well, which we'll probably start doing more regularly, maybe even monthly from now, forward, from now on. So we're going to answer a couple questions that we have gotten in the past that we feel are just very um, meaty, which kind of a weird thing for a vegan to say, but it'll allow us to really dig into a lot of different things. And then hopefully after those two questions, we will open it up and have some questions from the audience. So without further ado, what is our first question today? Thank you, Callie. Yeah, we are unbelievably stoked to be here. So our first email comes to us from Angela T. I've been vegan for almost four years now, and I have started to dread the holiday times more and more each time they come around. At first, I was super concerned with making sure all my relatives knew I was happy and healthy, able to field any vegan questions they had, basically just to be a good vegan advocate. But over the years, as my new vegan shine has worn off, the desire to be a good activist has been replaced with this growing sense of dread and anxiety. Now that I'm firmly settled in my vegan ways, it's hard to look at my loved ones the same way anymore. I love them, of course, but it's becoming harder to reconcile such otherwise thoughtful and caring folks uh, how they can't see how the harm they're causing in their everyday. I'm feeling this way all year round, but it's especially bad during the holidays when an influx of relatives descend upon our house. It makes me want to just withdraw entirely. Is it my duty to stay and be the vegan in the room? And how do you handle this sort of vegan existential dread? <laughs> and I would bet a lot of people, any vegans out there that are home for the holidays, things like that, can probably relate to that. So we figured it'd be a really good one to start off with. And there's like a bunch of different questions in there, so I guess we can kind of tackle a, a few of them. 
but I don't know who wants to take a crack at this first. First of all, Andy, great read. Thank you. Uh, it, it usually takes us about three or four tries to read <laughs> on the recording, which we edit out. But this actually is strikes uh, strikes close to home for me because for the past like however many years, I've had all my holidays with my very immediate family, and I don't have a very large family, and they've like been super accommodating and super warm, and, and they enjoy making the vegan options for me. So I think I've had it easy historically, but so my brother just got married, and now we're starting to do the holiday stuff at his like extremely large Italian extended family, 60-person holiday parties. And so now I'm, I'm, being, I'm starting to be put in these situations where I'm like, oh no, it's like, I'm the one that, I know this sounds like very privileged, but I'm the one that needs to bring my vegan option now. <laughs> and and I, I know people are gonna be asking me about it. And so it's, it's definitely been uncomfortable and I'm being thrown in this situation. So it's, it's tough, it's tough to, especially when you have to explain it to like basically strangers, because I don't know my brother's wife's fifth cousin. Like, I've never talked to this person before, but it's tough, and, and so I definitely sympathize for this. That wasn't an answer to any of the questions. You're <laughs> <laughs> setting the table. There you go, there you go. Yeah, I definitely relate to this quite strongly. Um, if you are a listener of our show, you might remember that I have talked quite a lot about the mashed potato incident with my mother, who I love very dearly. We're actually really good friends, but for some reason, she just has this mental block when it comes to mashed potatoes at holidays. And it's really not only mashed potatoes, it's all of the options, but that one in particular just seems like very hard for her to wrap her brain around. Um, so it, and holidays used to be very happy events for me. I always looked forward to holidays and now I'm always like, oh no, it's October. <laughs> like we're getting close to the holiday time and that's just going to be stress and anxiety. So I definitely relate a lot to this question. The advice I would give is just to stay with what your ethics are and know that you're not doing anything wrong. Um, hopefully the world will keep changing and understand that animal liberation absolutely has to happen and that animals aren't ours to use and our families will start being aware of that. But they're not going to if we, if we don't push it. And I think feeling like we're doing something wrong or that you know we feel sometimes sad because we're on the outside, it is very hard, but I think it's, we just have to kind of know that it's, it, it's really important. Um, and also that you can remove yourself from any situation that is uncomfortable or triggering and, and that that's okay too. Yeah. Yeah, what struck me from this question, can you guys hear me? Can you all hear me? <laughs> I'm trying to stop saying guys and it's, it's in there. Um, the thing that struck me the most from this question was the idea of what we're obligated to do as activists. And, you know, I went to the uh, community building and effective activism panel last night at the Chicago Solidarity Center. And I think one of the, one of the key <laughs> themes that came out from it was that, you know, self-care is a radical form of resistance. Mm -hmm. And so I think as the new veganness wears off and you start feeling that fatigue, one of the most powerful things you can do is do what you need to to feel okay not feel obligated to go and be the vegan in the room, answering all the questions and giving all the facts and all the stats. If you need to skip it, that's fine. If you need to go and just find a way to navigate where you're avoiding that as much as possible. I do it all the time. People bring up veganism to me. We get it 
for some reason, all the time from our Lyft drivers, and it's like, <laughs> you're the last person I want to talk to about this right now. <laughs> but when I was a new vegan, it was like, oh, that's a person who, you know, like I have to have this conversation and say it the perfect way, because then they might turn vegan, or they might talk to other people, and it might open a door. And now I'm like, dude, I've been at a thing all day. I'm exhausted. You know, like, I, you picked me up at a vegan restaurant. I didn't tell you I was vegan. You're asking all these invasive questions. Not that this happened to us just the other night or anything. Or just this morning. <laughs> like, where are you headed? And we're like, ugh. <laughs> Here it comes. Um, yeah. But it's been very liberating for us to realize that we can choose to not engage and we can choose to, that being an activist means more than taking the opportunity to have every single conversation. That if you need a night off, a holiday off, if you need to not think about it, that's actually great and fine and okay. And it's a very radical thing to do in this world, to put yourself first and to really cater to your own needs before anyone else's. And that's how you're going to be the most powerful activist you can be. Yeah, I think that like you can almost sort of reframe it as picking and choosing your battles mm -hmm. is a part of your activism. Mm -hmm. And that if you feel like you have to engage in every single conversation that burns you out, well, then maybe you're a really good activist for two years, but we need people that are good activists for 50, 60, 70 years. And so giving yourself that permission to withdraw is important. And it's funny because this email kind of almost traces the, our podcast progression because this is the <laughs> third episode we've done where it's been sort of kind of a holiday advice thing. And the first one we did, I went back and listened to it, and it was all just like how to make a great dish and how to please everyone and make sure you practice your elevator pitch and know all of these answers. And then like over time, I, th I still think all of those things are important. I still think that for anyone that really wants to use those opportunities, because we are the most effective when we're advocating to those that are most like us, often effective advocating to our friends and family, and so those are important tactics for us to use. But for someone like this that's just starting to feel so horribly burnt out on the whole thing that it, it's crucial for you to, to step back. And that doesn't mean you don't have to go to see your family that you know and love, but I can, I can relate to that. I love my family very much. Um, I feel very close with them. They're all very accommodating to my veganism, but none of them are vegan. And there still is that sense of feeling really kind of lonely and isolated mm -hmm. during those holiday times, despite the fact that often we'll have an all-vegan Thanksgiving. Or there's something about knowing that you're not exactly on the same wavelength as the people that you care so much about. Um, and I guess that's kind of getting at the second part of the question, which is like, how do you handle this vegan existential dread? Which I guess is that sort of thing. It's like, I love all these people. How do I reconcile that we just don't link up and how do you, I don't know, for me, the question is almost like, how do you not feel hopeless in all of that? So I guess I'll like, I think we, we could explore that a little bit. I, I would say, I don't know, we've talked about this on, on our podcast before, but not getting hung up specifically on, you know, getting your friends and family to go vegan because like you were saying, Andy, it's often like those people that we're closest with, then it, it feels the worst when we can't get those people to go vegan because it's like, oh, like I, I love you so much and I, I want you to think the same way that I do. And I don't know, I, I just think it's, it's important not to get hung up on any single person because there's billions of other people in the world that we can be advocating to. And, and even though we, are, we do have that close personal relationship, so we're going to know how to talk to those, those people better than just some random person on the street, I, I think it, it can be. It's um, exponentially more frustrating when that person that's so close to us 
doesn't get what we're trying to say rather than some random stranger on the street. So I would say try not to get super bummed out when it's like when that when your best friend or your, one of your family members isn't exactly getting the things that you're saying to them. Yeah, and we joke about on our show, like, don't convert your family because, or not don't, but like, don't like beat yourself up about converting your family because there's something very strange about that closeness that it just seems like you'll be vegan for years and then your mom will come home and be like, oh my goodness, there is this wonderful woman at the grocery store and she's vegan and she sent me a link to this thing and you're like, really? <laughs> really? But there's something, I, I think that's just the nature of family. There's something about it where when we're very close, I think our family feels accommodating us is the love, but then they're like, but it's your thing. Mm. Um, so, and that came up at the panel last night too. One of the panelists said, you know, I've been able to convert like 13 people at work and not a single person in my family. <laughs> it just is how it goes. So I agree with Paul, I think not getting too hung up on the fact that your family hasn't converted, which is... It's painful and it's difficult, of course, but um, just knowing that that's not a reflection of you or your activism or how you're speaking about things, it's just some strange element to that closeness kind of prevents us from really hearing other people. And like I said, it'll probably be some stranger at a farmer's market or a grocery store that gets them or some random post on Facebook and you'll be like, okay. But um, I think just, yeah, living your, like, being around your family in the best way that you can be is the most important. I know we've given some tips on things like seeing if you can shift the tradition to be around something that's not food-based. So not that you don't have dinner, but maybe you start making the focus of it that you all play a game after. And that's really what everyone's super excited about. Or I'm a puzzle nerd, so, like, doing a puzzle all night with hot chocolate would be really cool for me. Um, things like that, if you can kind of switch it over to something that's not so focused on the food and making the food the important part of the tradition, I think that can really help too. But that's dependent on how much is under your control. Yeah, I, I really liked, Andy, what you said about picking and choosing your battles. I do think that becomes even more important the longer you're in your veganism and really any form of activism that you're part of because it is a marathon that you're kind of sprinting in, but it's like you need to keep it up. And it gets really difficult to do that, especially because as activists, like we get so passionate and so we get these bursts of like emotion, you know, especially with things being so tense in the world right now, we just get so frustrated that the people around us aren't getting it. So I think picking and choosing and knowing like there's times that you can just check out and be like, Today is a day I'm taking for myself. And I think picking and choosing your battles can also relate to people as well. You know, there's nothing wrong with reevaluating the people in your life and deciding if they still bring good to your life or if they're only bringing like hurt. And if they are bringing hurt, maybe it's not all hurt, but some, how can you reposition them in your life to try to limit your exposure to the parts that make it really difficult for you to carry on in a relationship with them? Um, one of my biggest like guiding principles is feel your feelings. So I would also just end by saying, like, it's okay to feel really upset that your family's not getting it because mm -hmm. it's terrible the way we use animals. It's terrible that we have racism and sexism and all these other things in our culture right now. And it's okay to be like fricking mad. <laughs> I don't know if we can cut. Language, no. please. <laughs> this is the longest we've gone without. <laughs> 
it's okay to be very, very angry um, that the people around you aren't. So I think, um, like, mm. you know, Paul said it so it's good to not focus and put all of your hopes on one person and anxiety that they're not going vegan, but it's like also okay to be upset with them about it. And I've had lots of conversations with the people in my life where I'm like, look, if you won't engage with this in a real way, then I won't talk to you about it. And yeah, I'm mad. And this is a part of our relationship that isn't going well, but until you understand how fundamentally important social justice is, like I'm not gonna do this with you anymore. Also, I think it's important to point out, at least for Andy and myself, I cannot speak for you two, but we're definitely coming from this, coming at this question from a position of like the, the younger people, you know, like the children of like, it's like, cause we're not, we're not parents. And I feel like that would be a completely different dynamic that at least we, like we cannot speak to. Like if you had yeah. a child that was not vegan, I think that's completely different than when you're talking about going into a situation where you're like, oh, my parents won't make me vegan food or something like that. Come on, mom. <laughs> Just so, make a tofurkey. <laughs> but yeah, so it's like, I don't know if we can speak to that at all, but I just wanted to acknowledge that that is yeah. probably like a completely different set of questions and concerns and anxieties. Callie, I, I like what you said that it's, it's okay to feel upset at people because I think that like you probably do as well. We get so many questions on the show about people dating non-vegans and, yes. and usually it's a situation that's someone starts a relationship and neither person is vegan and then one person goes vegan and then they're kind of emailing us to be like, how do I, how do I, con how do I one, convert them? How do I reconcile yeah. this? And our advice is always like, well, you, you sort of have to love them for who they are and not get hung up on that. But then, yes, it is important to like recognize that it's mm -hmm. frustrating when someone that you love so much, you feel so fundamentally at odds with. And I think maybe that is kind of what leads to a lot of this kind of like dread and sort of like hopelessness feeling. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I'm like, like, how do you how do you all like deal with that? Maybe that's sort of like in a broader sense, not even just related to like loved ones, but like, how do you deal with that? Like, do you feel hopeless ever? And like, how like what do you do to combat that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've been feeling real, real hopeless recently <laughs> about a lot of things. So yes, you know, I think this relates to a lot of questions that. You know, anyone that does, anyone who's some sort of leader or speaks out on behalf of veganism gets a lot of questions like, I'm feeling this way, what do I do about it? And I feel like those questions, they always break my heart because they say to me that the person's like, how do I not feel this way anymore? Like, I'm feeling upset and I know like as a good vegan activist, I'm not supposed to and I'm supposed to be like the good, happy vegan. And no, you absolutely do not. Like, you're a person who's allowed to have feelings. And some days you're gonna be feeling really energetic and you're gonna to wanna to go out there and engage in those conversations and then other days you're just not. And someone's gonna you know, talk to you, like your Lyft driver is gonna be like, well, I really like steak though. And I was like, mm, well, today's not the day. Like you're not, <laughs> you're not getting a sweet like vegan elevator pitch from me. Like I'm not in the mood. <laughs> and like that has to be okay too. Yeah, and we talked recently on the show, we've been doing an activism series, and we talked a lot about how activism can be you just being very strong and secure in who you are and letting that radiate out from you. So we are at the point where I don't have an elevator pitch anymore. I kind of don't really entertain the questions that I find irritating <laughs> or basic. 
Um, and not that I'm like, Ugh, you know, screw, screw off, like I'm not going to talk to you. But I just, I kind of look at the person, I'm like, eh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take this as this is my moment to shine, you know? <laughs> and I think sometimes that can be powerful for someone to see you be a little fatigued and be a little irritated and realize that their question's invasive or kind of ignorant. I don't think we always need to make people feel good about their ignorance. And from when I became, first became a vegan and tried stepping into activism, I felt like that was a lot of what I was told to do, was to make other people really comfortable with their ignorance so that this would seem, you know, so that they wouldn't get a bad impression of veganism. And I certainly don't go out and scream at people or say nasty things to them, but I also found that it can be powerful to just be like, you know, like, that's, <laughs> why are you saying this to me? Because I don't think we, I think in a lot of other ways, if someone came up and said a racist comment to you, hopefully you would probably be like, you know, that's racist, that's not cool, like, we're going to talk about why, but I'm putting a barrier up that I'm not going to engage with you and make you feel comfortable about what you just said. Mm -hmm. And yet, with veganism, we've been trained that we're supposed to make everyone comfortable and shove cupcakes in their face and, you know, like, wrap them up in a warm faux leather coat and just <laughs> coddle them. And, and it's like, we don't, I mean, if that's what you do and you're good at that and that makes you feel good, great. We need all different types, but I think it's okay if you're kind of snarky and cynical and tired like me to be like, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not telling you where I get protein from. <laughs> I'm not doing it. <laughs> when people say, what do you eat? I'm like, I'm not talking about this. <laughs> yeah, I think it's tough to strike a balance between like, being empathetic with the fact that we were all not vegan at some point, yeah. but then also not saying something that's kind of being like, oh, it's okay what you're doing. Right. And I think that's, that's that really That is a difficult. balance that's hard to find. Because you don't want to say, you don't want to say, like, you don't have to do this, or, yeah. or, or, I mean, no one has to do anything, but it's like, you don't want to say it's okay mm -hmm. to do this. You want to say, stand firm with your ethics, but also acknowledge, like, I'm not a perfect person. I'm still working on stuff, and... And I, and I do think that that is a good way to, to be able to connect with people, is admit that you're not, you know, it's like, because I think with the stereotype of how people feel about vegans, I think if you can admit to them, it's like, I'm a person that's growing and changing and working on myself too, maybe they'll be able to connect with that better and they'll be yeah. like, oh, you're not, like, you don't think that you're better than me, something yeah. like that. I also feel like um, my relationships with certain people got better once I dropped the, like, like the shiny activist routine, mm -hmm. you know, and once I was like, oh, okay, I don't have to take every opportunity to, you know, sell them on activism anymore. And there were days where they would talk to me and, and I just remember looking at some people and being like, I'm really tired. Like I'm tired all the time and I'm tired of talking with you about this. And it's really like veganism is so central to who I am and who I become as a person in this activist who like really deeply cares about justice. And it really hurts me that you don't like seem to care, you know? So we can have a relationship, but like I want you to know that. And I feel like people have engaged with my activism more like certain family members and friends now that they're like, oh, like, this is not just like you selling me something. This is like, if I care about you as a person, like I need to at least care about what you care about and try to not be like hurtful about it. Yeah, I've, I've found that like in a lot of the conversations I have had with strangers is that often sometimes what people need is someone that's just kind of like snarky like that or kind of like 
you know, you sort of return their tone if they're kind of mm -hmm. being a bit of a jerk to you and you sort of like kind of playfully, I don't want to say mock, but like, you know, you sort of like throw it back in their face and then they kind of respect you a little bit more because you're not just trying to like smile and, <laughs> and be like, oh, that's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about that and do all those things. And, and I hope that like, you know, people don't take this as us being like, you should never talk about veganism ever. Right. <laughs> I, I feel like that, that like we run that risk, but I think all of this is about, uh, in many ways, self-preservation, mm -hmm. which kind of gets to the heart of the question, which is how do, how do we stay this, in this for the long run? Yeah. And, and I mean, for someone like myself, who's very much an introvert, uh, you know, putting on that, that shiny activist face all of the time is a recipe for me to not want to talk to anyone ever for like sit, you know, sit in a dark room for a week. Same. And so, like, be like recognizing that, you know, after I do a veg fest, I love talking to everyone, but I'm done with human interaction for like another couple of days. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think all of this comes down to, for me, it's like self-preservation, and maybe I don't want to engage with the stranger in line at the grocery store, and maybe I do. Maybe I see that they're buying chow cheese, and I want to talk to them about it or something like that. But giving yourself that permission yeah. to say yes or no to those conversations. Yeah, and that made me think of something too. I think part of my fatigue with talking about activism is because I'm really an anti-oppression activist now, and I'm sort of tired about, I'm sort of tired of people hearing this one label and then focusing on that, when really like my veganism is an extension of my anti-racism and we're living in Trump's America. Like, there's a lot of things we need to be talking about, and so to talk about if I eat anything other than salad just seems so <laughs> petty to me, and it seems to just put me in this box that I don't fit into anymore at all. Um, so I think that this question now in the environment that we're in, I think that a lot of people are feeling that as well. There's a lot of things right now to be discussing and talking about, and so to have someone focus in this way where they're just distilling down something that's very important and vital to you, to your diet or you know what you do with the holidays can be really frustrating. So I'm, I've been sort of approaching it that way. I mean, I um, was regaling my friends at dinner the other night with a story of someone who was incredibly rude to me, uh, someone who actually asked me to hang out and then was incredibly rude to me about my veganism. And she was telling me how she met someone in college who was vegan and um, he was telling her, you know, uh, I don't eat eggs because they're not here, like animals aren't here for our use. And she's like, what an idiot. And I told him to his face, he was an idiot. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, geez. But she, um, she, you know, she went on about her story and then she was like, but I mean, he didn't tell me about the environment or health or any of this other stuff. And then she looked at me and she's like, I'm sure you, you have a lot of different reasons for being vegan, right? She was trying to get me to say, oh yeah, like at the health and the environment. And I was like, no, I'm an ethical vegan, period. I was like, I'm not gonna have this with you right now. I'm not gonna back down from how I feel about things because of how you're trying to bully me into upholding how you feel. And that's just where I'm at. Not everyone's there, but I think if any of you are feeling this way where there's so much to talk about and there's so many important urgent things going on, it's okay to just bring them up and stand by them and sometimes shut stuff down. I wasn't gonna convince her to go vegan. She does animal agriculture research. I mean, she knows everything. Um, but I was gonna stand there and say, I said, I totally agree with him. I would say the same thing. You know, I'm not gonna let this be something we get derailed on when we have so many other things to talk about. And I was like, hey, so what about that Kavanaugh confirmation? You know, like, let's talk about it. 
Should we move on to that second question? Yes. Yeah. Let's do it. And Let's now for something it. completely Slide different. That <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. One take. Here Applause we go. after each question. I like it. <laughs> so this is an email from Christina C. Who asked, have you seen the video going around claiming that avocados, almonds, etc., are not vegan because they require the use of bees trucked in specifically to pollinate them? How would you respond if someone brought this up as a gotcha to veganism? And I did do just like a little little research there and just found other examples. And like the list basically goes on and on with everything. Yeah. Apple, yeah, squash, pumpkins, too. blueberries, cranberries, avocados, almonds, etc. All pollinated by bees that are often Melons, trucked in. Melons, I think I saw in that article too. I mean, there was... Yeah, That's when everything. the question, what do you eat, would be legitimate, because yeah. <laughs> really what's left. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, my first reaction would probably just be to like, ugh, and roll my eyes, but <laughs> for a more detailed answer, <laughs> someone else want to chime in? Yeah, do you guys want to kick it off? Do you have thoughts? Well, so I think when I think about this question, um, I think that like, maybe I wouldn't just shrug it off and be like, ugh, like maybe I'd be like, maybe this is an actual ethical question. Like mm -hmm. as vegans, we choose not to eat honey. So what is the difference between having these bees trucked in to pollinate? Um, but you know, like, like I, I guess I wouldn't dismiss it outright, but I also think about when we're, we're talking about advocating for veganism, you know, we've had a number of conversations on the show where someone brings up an article that's like, this person lives in the woods and they only eat this one cow a year and that means their diet is better. Like, what, it was, they come up with some scenario and, and we've come to this point where like, we might admit that there might be some scenario in which actually directly killing an animal is less impactful upon the animals and the environment and therefore more animals um, than the average vegan who buys Gardein chicken tenders and like all of these things. Um, but is this a, a preachable global ethic that we can tell everyone to go do? And the answer is, is always no. That that's not something that we can tell everyone to go live in the woods and kill this one cow all the time. And that if we're trying to talk to people that are not interested in going and living some radically different lifestyle, uh, what can I talk to them about? And I don't want to talk to them about like, well, all of a sudden you can no longer eat, you know, 75% of the produce that's in your supermarket. And, and to me, it just comes down to that little, you know, in the description of veganism, as far as practicable and possible. Um, to me, this falls under the scenario of it's not practical or possible for most people to avoid these things. And, and, and it just like, it's not an F, a veganism that I can preach, nor one that I feel like I would be able to practice and, talking about the long game, stay a, a, a healthy and active and happy vegan if all of a sudden my diet's reduced to, I'm gonna list something like rice, which is probably pollinated by bees. I don't know how, you know, whatever, whatever it <laughs> it's is. It's very to be water like, intensive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess that's kind of where I come down on it is that like, you know, we have to admit that there are certain situations in which we might have to interact with animals. Like, uh, you know, I used to think that for me, veganism meant removing myself from interacting with animals as far as possible. No, no companion animals, et cetera, all of those things. And, and we've got some great emails from listeners that are like, maybe that's not the ideal. Maybe there is some sort of interaction that we do have to have in order to, to thrive. Like short of just letting ourselves die off, there are probably some scenarios in which use of animals might have to happen. So I don't know if I have all the answers to it, but that's like sort of how I approach it is. I don't think that this veganism that would mean no longer telling, like telling people you can't eat apple, squash, pumpkin, blueberry, all those things. To me, that's not something that is a global ethic that is preachable. 
Yeah, I think, I think also it's important to acknowledge that someone that's bringing this up probably doesn't actually care about these things, and they're just trying to get you to admit that something you're doing is hypocritical, and, and if you're being hypocritical, then all of like the hypocritical feelings that I feel about maybe that I feel about eating meat, then those are okay. So it's almost like they're trying to get, they're trying to say like, oh, well, you're not a perfect person, so then I don't need to be a perfect person, so then I don't need to make these, make any changes. And I think, again, I mean, I think everything is like a fine line, you're walking a fine line, but it's like you have to you don't have to. You want to be able to be like, you're right, like, I'm not, I'm not perfect and I'm not claiming to be perfect and maybe, you know, it's like maybe one day we will get to a place where, where as a society, I'm, I am not knowledgeable about agricultural stuff, but maybe we, people that are, can figure something out where we won't need to use these bees anymore. I'm not going to be that person that does that, but, like, that probably isn't you know, a main global concern. Maybe it is. Bees is a pretty big concern right now. But, like, <laughs> people that are experts on these things will hopefully figure out this, but in the, in the meantime, like, you or I, the person that I'm having this conversation with, like, that's not something that necessarily we can do anything about, but there is things that I can do that I can change that's going to hopefully make the world a slightly better place, and there's things that you can do that you can change that's going to help. So, like, listing off these huge systemic issues, it's like we've been doing this type of agriculture for long enough that this is just how it is. And like me personally, I can't necessarily change that, but I can change things about my lifestyle that can have impacts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really, I, I just don't engage with gotcha questions anymore, especially if it comes from someone who I know does not care. They're not, like if another ethical vegan came up to me and was like, hey, did you see this new article about like how we're trucking bees in to like pollinate, you know, avocados and that's a real problem. That would be a conversation I would be interested in having. But if someone was trying to point that out as, and it comes back to this phrase of there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. People love to say that to be, and it's true. But, <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean we just throw our hands up and say, okay, then we get to do whatever the heck we want. We get to eat whatever we want. It, it's because it's like, well, that, like, what are you calling for? A society to just break down completely and everyone gets to run around and break any law or eat anything they want or commit any crime because nothing matters. You know, there's no way to be an ethical human. And no, they're not saying that. They're only trying to point out the ways in which, like, well, you may be doing this ethical thing, but you're not as good as you think you are. And it's like, okay, true. Like, there's a lot of ways in which just living nowadays, um, you know, the houses we live in, the roads we drive in, like, those, that was all land that was taken from the animals that, like, lived there before we developed it. And yeah, when we get, go get our food at the grocery store, like, are the workers being paid fair, fairly? You know, Whole Foods, like, they profit off of prison labor. Like, okay, are you not gonna go to Whole Foods anymore? Like, maybe, maybe not. There's all these things out there that are problematic, you know, whether the farm workers are paid a living wage. But we should care about all these things, but we can't be perfect. So that just means do the best you can and don't engage with if we can't do everything, then we shouldn't do anything. Yes. So I have a lot of thoughts, <laughs> but I will try to focus on one for now. Um, so this just makes me think, we talk a lot on the show about being anti-capitalist and being um, having kind of an anti-consumerist definition of veganism. And this is exactly why. Because first of all, I don't think products should be labeled vegan 
products and things can't be vegan. They can be plant-based, they can be free of animal cruelty, they can be you know, not tested on animals. But veganism, I, it, it's a way that they've managed to commodify our movement. You can literally buy veganism now. And I think we as a people need to stop and really think about what that means. Um, at the panel last night, someone was joking about, uh, I think it was KR was joking about how veganism and yoga have suddenly become this hand-in-hand -hand thing. And it's because we're being sold a lifestyle that's profitable to people. So if we talk about are these products vegan, nothing's, no product is vegan. As Callie said, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, that's just how it is. Doesn't mean we don't have an obligation to do the best that we can. We absolutely do. But we also need to get away from this idea that we can just buy our ethics and stop there. And it's hard for us because we get a lot of pushback on being anti-capitalist from a lot of people, but this is why. This is why we're so firm in this. I think um, any vegan should be anti-capitalist because they need to learn and understand how these things connect and that there's always going to be exploitation in our food. Mm. We found out a tofu we buy in San Diego is tested on animals. Uh, you can find out that you know the fruit that you buy is picked by people who are being treated terribly. Um, it's how we have white vegans in San Diego who are anti-immigration, and you're like, where do you think your food comes from? So it's it's all connected, and this framing of products as if um, it also bothers me that there's almost this external agency that's telling us what is okay and what's not. And to me, that's not what a radical political movement should be. It shouldn't be someone else telling you what the rules are. It should be communities figuring that out for themselves. And I think that goes to Andy's example of, you know, this person off in the woods who kills one cow a year. If that's what works for that community and that's what they've decided, gets them away from animal exploitation on a large scale, then maybe that's what they do. But this idea that we can have a set of rules that everyone follows is very white, it's very colonialist, it's not okay. And this is how they've come in and they've commodified veganism. We joked on the show, I mean, Beyonce has a friggin' vegan meal plan that you can buy. That's how commodified it's become. It's fashionable for a huge celebrity to sell vegan food now. And that's a problem. And I hear so many people saying, oh, this is, but that's great that it's mainstream because then more people do it and then we save animals. But if you look, animal consumption is up and it's always been going up. We haven't changed anything, excuse me. They'll sell the animals to someone else. Those animals are still dying. And it's not to be depressing. I know that sucks because I used to love those Instagram memes where you're like, this is how many animals a year I saved. Um, but you didn't. It's to be realistic, like we need to understand how things actually work so we can actually make change. And sitting here letting people sell us avocado toast and then letting other people tell us avocado toast isn't vegan <laughs> is not how we're gonna do it. <laughs> yeah, our movement should be a radical, uh, progressive political movement, right? It should be rooted in being anti-oppression and being pro for the liberation of animals, you know, to avoid exploitation. And if you look at other social justice movements, you know, you don't buy, like, you don't buy something and they're like, oh, you bought this thing, you're now a feminist, congratulations, right? Like, feminism is this thing. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you. Uh, <laughs> feminist is this thing that you try to do and practice, but we all realize that there's, you can't be a perfect feminist, right? There's no, you may disagree with a different feminist about what things are okay and what things aren't okay. It's just a, a political movement that you're trying to follow um, to make the world a little more just. And veganism needs to be a little bit more like that and a little less about the things that we purchase. You know, yes, of course the things we purchase matter, but it shouldn't only be that. I think it's tougher with veganism, though, because it is so centered around the things we purchase rather than, like, our actions, you know? I mean, it has to do with our actions as well, but for a lot of people, especially, like, a lot of non-vegan people, when they think about veganism, all they think about is, like, oh, it's what I buy or what I don't buy. Right, and I think we can change that. Yeah. You know, I don't think we'll ever be able to remove the, like, what you're buying or what you don't buy from it, but I think if we could get people to think about it more radically and know that it's, it's a political stance that they're taking that, yes, results in actions, you know? Like, feminism, and again, is a political stance, and it will result in actions that you take. It may mean that you boycott certain um, companies or certain artists or whatever, um, but so you are taking actions, but you're not thinking of it's only the actions first. And if we could get people to shift and just think about it differently, um, I think we would be much, spend much less time fighting in the trenches on Facebook with each other about like, well, you're not vegan, or you are vegan, or you were a vegan, but now you're not because you won't give up avocados, or you know, you still use Earth Balance and that has palm oil, and palm oil's vegan, or palm oil's not vegan. We spend so much time fighting because it's all product-based instead of like, yeah, but what do you believe though? Like, what are you doing? How are you going about your life, and what are you really letting guide you? Yeah, because those are the same people who will then be all lives matter and won't engage with you about other political conversations because they just want these rules and mm. they want some people to follow the rules and they want other people to not follow the rules and those people are the bad people and they're the good people. And this is, again, a way that we keep this hierarchy that doesn't work for a social justice movement. If you say, I'm pro Black Lives Matter, People don't ask you, well, what do you buy, <laughs> right? They know what that means, and that's what veganism should mean. No one should be asking me what I buy when I say I'm vegan, or I get it all the time, people, because I'm, you know, I don't really talk about it at work. I do when it comes up, but people think I'm like this cool alternative girl because they work in like a financial company and they don't know what to do with me. And so they're like, oh, like you're probably vegan for health or something, right? And it's just like, and I'm like, no, <laughs> not at all. You know, I'm vegan for it because I'm anti-oppression. Mm -hmm. But people always want to like, you know, make it comfortable for me and it shouldn't be comfortable. Yeah. I'm not saying we should be like screaming in people's faces necessarily, <laughs> but we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't be doing something where it's like, oh, I can give you a grocery list and then you can be vegan too. And I know that's how we recruit a lot of people into the movement is by, it's so easy, you know? There's these simple rules you follow and then this is it. But that's led us to have this mass consumption where we're buying products that support companies that kill animals and also do horrible things to humans. And we haven't taken a step back as a movement to see that the mainstreaming of veganism is actually a really bad thing. 
And that doesn't mean it shouldn't spread, but anytime something's mainstream, it's because it's been whitewashed to the point and commercialized that it's comfortable for most people. And that's not a good thing if you're fighting oppression because anti-oppression work is uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for me to become a vegan. It was uncomfortable for me to um, become you know, fully anti-racist, like fully educated, when work still to be done, of course. But to get to the point where I am now, I had to confront my own privilege, right? Like that work is uncomfortable. And I think we need to be okay with that in our movement. And so, yeah, getting caught up in, and I'm not saying that I actually think that this is important, but I think it's important in a different way than probably other people do. I think it's important because it shows how much exploitation is in our food system. Yeah. And I think that's really important for us to talk about holistically with animals and people, how food is used to colonize other countries, other areas, other peoples, how it's been done historically. And to point out and say, this is how corrupted our system is, that we can't even eat freaking avocados anymore without having to, to wonder about it, you know? And I, I mean, I would not say that this is insignificant. I know after um, when Cowspiracy came out, there was a lot of press around how many gallons of water it takes to make a hamburger. And then the omnivores pushed back with, well, almonds are really water intensive and rice is really water intensive. And I was like, yeah, that's fair, you know? And so I actually have cut down my consumption of those things. I used to make rice all the time. Um, and I don't think that people necessarily need to do that, but I was like, hey, I have new information. I'm gonna act on it. I can eat other stuff. Um, so I don't think that this is insignificant. This might change how the things I purchase, but it also shows how backed into a corner we are. If we wanna eat ethical food that's truly ethical, there's nothing out there. <laughs> that's a problem that we need to talk about. This should be a talking point. This shouldn't be a gotcha question. Yeah, I think that like something that you just said, um, a good like retort to this, if someone says this to you, might be to say like, like you just said like, yeah, it really sucks how much exploitation there is in the food, in like yes. the food business. Let's do you want to help me? It. Like, let's do something about yeah. it. And they'll be like, oh no, you want me to do something? <laughs> <laughs> But, but I think that that would be a good way to, be, to, to acknowledge that it is an issue and you want it to be better, but you also have to do something about it too. Yeah, it becomes collaborative. Yeah, yeah the, the, it's like the burden is on the people that are already trying to do something a little bit and not the people that are doing nothing or close to nothing. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, like we just have to keep like losing things, right, is kind of the <laughs> perception. Like they're just gonna keep coming at us and be like, oh, you're not as good as you thought you were. And, oh, you need to take this thing and this thing and this thing else out and there and then they just don't seem to have to take anything out of their diet and so it is it is about engaging more with like yeah like let's all try to be a little bit more ethical and avoid expectation in our food as much as possible and make sure as vegans too that we're living up to this idea of being anti-oppression and if you hear about something going on in the food system like try to take action on it you know the um they're has been, I think it's still ongoing, but calling for a boycott of Wendy's because they won't, like their workers asked for some astronomical, astronomically small amount. It's like one penny a bushel of tomatoes more or something. And Wendy's won't give it to them. But Wendy's came out with a vegan burger and vegans were flocking to Wendy's, you know? So it's like, let's get more involved. Like, we shouldn't be buying Driscoll's berries because Driscoll's treats their workers terribly too. So it's like stuff like this. Like, we can get involved and try to change things in the food system beyond just like, is there animals in this or not? And if there isn't, then I just don't care about anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Should we open it up to the floor now? Let's yeah. do it. Does All right, John, you got questions? that mic? <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot we need... Awesome. I think he's going to in the front. Wireless. Fancy. Yeah, yes. we'd love some audience questions. Yeah. Uh, right up front, I guess. I'm, I'm scared to call on Alan. <laughs> um, for the holidays question, um, I sometimes see somebody looking for a place for a birthday, and my usual response is, it's your birthday, it's your choice. The Omnis can suck it up and not kill for one meal out of the thousand plus meals they're gonna have this year. I completely agree. I'm a little brat on my birthday. Yeah, definitely use, <laughs> definitely use the birthday. Oh, I think there's a question, right? I, oh. Hannah. Hannah. <laughs> hey. Hi. <laughs> so something that I encounter quite a lot is that a lot of vegan activist life and framing and how they think about things is not grounded in the experience of non-human animals. Mm -hmm. And I would really like to see people engage more with how life is for non-human animals and getting them to adopt them. So I was wondering, what are your suggestions for getting more into a non-human frame of mind? Damn. <laughs> a really good question. It's something actually because I've heard you kind of speak about this a little bit before that I've been thinking about, but I feel like I don't really have any interaction with non-human animals right now. I don't even have a companion animal at home. Um, so I feel very removed from that experience and it's starting to strike me that that's not good. Mm -hmm. You know, that I want to change that, but I, I feel a little kind of lost in my life on how to do that and how to encourage others to do it. Besides just saying, do it, it's important. Yeah. What was the movie that we just watched, Andy, with the zoo? I was about to say Zootopia, that is not the right word. But do you remember what I'm talking about? It was like this idea that, that I had never... I don't remember the name of it, but I... This is so meaningless to everyone right now. <laughs> no, but it was, it was this idea where it's like, because... The end of me. That was a movie? It was the end yes. of me. And, and like, like Andy mentioned earlier, it's like, at, the at least at the beginning of the podcast, when we first started, we had kind of taken this position like, oh, like, love cats, love dogs, but maybe, you know, it's like, we should just keep adopting them and then, and then stop breeding them, and then eventually, in some amount of years, there would no longer be companion animals, and that would be, that would, that's what it means to not be like exploitative to animals, but this movie, it put forward this idea that I had never thought of before, which was like, it's like coexisting with animals because it's not, it's not realistic that humans will not interact with any animals. And they kind of put it in these different categories where it was like, for instance, squirrels and pigeons and animals that if you're living in a city, you are going to interact with every single day. Like there would be ways and they would have like certain rights and, and there would be not rules, but there'd be ways that we would interact with them that would be, you know, the least invasive versus an animal that lives in like the forest or something like that, where there'd be very little little or limited or no interaction with those animals. And then maybe there is a spot for companion animals. And it was almost like putting it in these different categories. And I I I have not looked into this, but there were people like researching this and kind of putting forward these ideas about how a society like that could exist, and I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, because oh, I'm cool. sorry. Oh, because it really is unrealistic that we can say like, oh, I'm vegan, so I'm gonna have like no, 
I'm not going to affect animals at all, but then expect to never interact with like a deer or a squirrel or a, a bird or something like that. It's like you are going to interact with them. Yeah, and we really made the mistake by divorcing ourselves from nature. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think the solution is for us to, like, divide that line even more strongly between us and animals. And I think that kind of maintains human exceptionalism, which is something that we have to fight as vegans. But a lot of vegans still hold on to that, thinking we know better than animals and that we're here to protect them, which is not really the case. We should be here just trying to live in concert with them um, in nature. I would say, um, I, I know like uh, we live somewhat close to a farm sanctuary, or farm sanctuary, so going there was really great for me. I had a wonderful experience there. I know that there's micro sanctuaries um, that you can support and if there's one nearby to visit, but I don't really know yet how to get us to like have more of an inclusive existence with animals, but I think it's important that we do. I watched uh, Christopher Sebastian give a talk about, shoot, I can't remember what the title of it was. It might have been his Queering uh, Animal Liberation talk, but they, he talked about um, something I never thought about before, but the ways in which we make cities unwelcoming to animals, like with pigeons, there's the, I forget what they call those. There's the spikes they put up so that they can't stand in certain areas. Yeah. and. It, it just really opened my eyes to the ways that we need to find a way to just, I think as Paul was saying, understand and accept and embrace that animals will always be a part of our life, um, a part of our ecosystem, and just find a way to coexist um, so that it's not this weird us and them kind of thing. Yeah. Great, thank you. Next question. Yes. Are there any certain ways that you see social justice or anti-capitalism treated as a list rather than a practice, just as veganism is? Mm. That's a really good question. I don't think as cleanly as veganism is. I think veganism is a little unique in that there's almost literally a list of things you can follow. But I do think that we fall into that. Um, you know, I could speak for feminism. I came into feminism when I was in high school and I was taught by like second wave feminists um, who, you know, had their own perspective that didn't really jive with mine. And it did feel very much like, you know, you can't be a feminist if you wear makeup, you can't be a feminist if you love men, you can't be a feminist if you like being feminine, which is a little ironic. Um, so I do, I do think we, we do sort of police each other in other movements a bit. And I, I can just speak for feminism because you know, I'm a woman in feminism, so I've experienced people telling me that I'm doing it wrong. Um, but I think veganism is unique, I think, at least that there's really like literally this list of things. Yeah, I definitely think, especially online communities, you start to find out really quickly in activist um, spaces and anti-oppression spaces, like what things are kind of signed off on by people and what things are not. Um, so that definitely happens, but I think veganism, like Nicole was saying, is unique in that those things still exist, like which things are okay and which aren't, but they tend to be like what you buy and not necessarily so much about like what you think or who you support, you know, as much as in other movements. Yeah, good question. All right, here's another question. Hi, um, back to the holiday questions. Uh, when I go home for the holidays, I go to a pretty rural place and uh, my family has farm animals and most of them hunt. 
And I have noticed since I became vegan that a lot of family members really kind of relish in telling me like graphic details of like rendering meat and like harming animals. And I don't have a good response to it other than just becoming really upset at like things that they're saying. Do you guys have any um, thoughts or? Maybe, so obviously everyone has like different relationships with their family, so it's like what I'm saying, you could be like, no, that would not work at all, and, and I'm, I don't know your family. So, um, but maybe, because I think sometimes people, especially family members, it's like they like to, you know, like they like to make fun of you and stuff for it, and some of them may do that because they don't realize that it's like such a central part of, for many people, it's like a central part of your identity, and I don't know. I, I, I know some family members of mine that I think if they, they do kind of like take digs at me and if I did explain to them like, hey, this is something that it's not just like, it's not my diet. It's not like something that I'm doing just to like be cool or something like that. It's, it's a very important part of me. And I think if I explained that to them, they would uh, be more likely to be like, oh, sorry. Like I, I didn't realize that obviously. Some people are just jerks, but like uh, that's that's one idea that I can think of. Although being vegan is very cool, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like this is one of those situations where, depending on your family, of course, it could be one of those times where you're just like, if you're going to keep treating me like this, I'm not going to come here anymore. Now, of course, that's like, you know, you're gauging out how important your family is to you, and if you're if they're going to be like, fine, don't come around here anymore. But I think saying things like that will convey how serious this is and how, how much this is not something that you want to tolerate. And again, give yourself permission to, to not show up. If, you've, if, if the strife that's caused to you by those comments is, is, is not worth putting yourself through, like don't feel obligated to show up for your family if you don't have to, or yeah. if you don't want to. Yeah, and I would say don't be afraid to show you're upset. You know, if someone says something like that to you or if they're really relishing, like, explaining in graphic detail them hunting or whatever and you say you're being really mean right now like you're being really rude and you're hurting my feelings and you're telling me right now that like you don't care about the things that are important to me and you know like they just said say I don't need to come here anymore if you're going to treat me like this but like I'm part of the family and I deserve to be treated with respect like don't be afraid to set those boundaries and let them know what the fallout is if they cross your boundaries you know and then follow through. We got a boundary question. We did. We love boundaries. We love boundaries. <laughs> yeah, I would echo what they're saying. And I would, I would also say, uh, whenever I talk to people about this, is that you don't have to explain yourself. Um, you can say, I don't want to talk about that, period. That's a full sentence. And um, as Callie was saying, I think have in your head, decide for yourself what those repercussions should be if people don't listen to you. So maybe it's that you leave the room, maybe you're like, I'm gonna leave the room, I'm gonna come back in 10 minutes, let's try this again. And um, maybe the ultimate repercussion is that you don't come for the holidays or you find ways to be around um, your other family members who don't do that to you and cut these people out. But I think just setting the boundary, and I think as vegans, we get conditioned that we're the ones who are being difficult and weird and so we feel, even when someone's being rude to us, that you know we have to find a way to navigate it that makes the other person comfortable. But if this person was saying like sexual things to you or racist things to you or something else, I think it'd be very easy to say like, well, not easy. We all have issues with families and boundaries, but um, 
you know, it, it would probably feel more justified for you to say, hey, like, I'm not going to sit here and listen to this, and if you're going to keep talking this way, I'm out, and actually leave. So I think it's okay to just set set those rules. And if you want to explain it, if you want, like, um, policing, if you think that would help, sometimes people just knowing that you actually care and it's hurting you is very effective. If you think these people are just going to be like, oh, you're too sensitive and we're just joking, then saying something like, listen, this is a hard line. I don't need to justify why. It just is. Mm -hmm. And this is what's going to happen if you don't respect it. Which is not easy work, by the way. Yeah. I don't mean to say it like that's an easy thing to do. That's like the hardest thing to do, but that's all you can do. Yeah, making the decision to cut people out of your life, especially family, or set boundaries with them and know that, you know, that may mean you need to actually act on their actions is very difficult. So we don't want to minimize that at all. So just good, good luck. <laughs> Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to kind of the opposite phenomenon of what we, a lot of what we've been talking about, but this sort of online culture of um, sort of a pile on against those who have made innocent mistakes, um, maybe misspoke, maybe didn't, weren't fully aware of a situation or um, used, you know, offensive verbiage without... It's difficult when it's online because you don't know intent and all that. But it does seem like there is often a rush to judgment and a, and and sort of a uh, you know character assassination that happens in these situations. So I'm wondering um, if you have any advice for how to if you're an observer, not necessarily on the bottom of a pylon, <laughs> but um, how you can help to. Um, get to a place where an actual dialogue can happen and a conversation can happen without defensiveness and hurt feelings and anger? That is a great question um, and something that's very topical right now. I mean, online spaces are becoming so toxic and it's something Nicole and I talk about all the time. A lot of us don't have big social groups in our like day-to-day -day life, like our IRL lives, um, with people who like are also like on the same page as us ethics-wise, and so we build these online communities, and then it becomes very scary where you start, we have this culture right now of like burning people to the ground immediately and not giving anyone recourse to come back, and you're constantly worried about saying the wrong thing because you would lose your connection to like the only other people who get it, you know, who get you. So Nicole and I joke a lot about, you know, burning down systems, which we agree with. But um, we talk also, we try to make sure people know that while we should be burning down the things that are toxic, we need something that will stand once it's over, right? And that means like building relationships with people and allowing some space for mistakes. And sometimes that means, you know, Nicole and I had an experience a little while ago where someone who was um, a friend, is a friend and a supporter, got really mad about something that happened, something that we didn't say on the show and called us out pretty publicly and pretty harshly. Mm -hmm. And Nicole and I were kind of in our feelings about it for a couple hours and we talked and realized the best course of action was to reach out to this person and say, hey, like we know you and uh, we respect you a lot and we're very sorry that we hurt you. 
um, would you like to talk about it? And we had a private call offline and tried to work things out because we, and we talked to this person about the idea of social capital, which I'll let Nicole get into because that's such a big topic for you, but th this idea like we need to have some connections with one another. And, and mis we say all the time as activists that mistakes will happen but then we don't seem to give anyone space to make them. You know, we tell people you'll make mistakes, but then they make them and we're like, out. <laughs> and never come back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, um, it, to your question, I don't know as a third party, essentially in this situation, if there's really a way you can facilitate this. I think you have to be either one of the participants or you have to be maybe a moderator. Um, but from what we found, the best thing to do is to interact, get those people offline interacting directly, not necessarily offline, but like out of the public forum and see if you can facilitate some re remediation, basic or mediation um, between the two. And I know with our situation, one of the things we did was that, you know, we came at it from an angle of restorative justice. So we're like, we messed up, here's our proposal of the things we could do to try to, to rectify the situation. Does that work for you? Is there anything you need that's not on here? Do you wanna modify anything? So we started off with that. And then once we came to an agreement of like what was gonna be done, um, you know, I was pretty frank and I was like, how do we build community here? Mm -hmm. I said, you know, this was something that happened. It was an honest mistake. Um, doesn't get us out of having to rectify it, but also like, how do we get to a point where we build enough trust between us that you can just come to us and talk to us rather than have this very public display of anger? And just, you know, just so that we know each other better. And so again, I'm not really sure how you can do that as a third party, but that's sort of the vibe that we've been going for to try to, to build this community. Cause I think everyone's so hurt I mean, people, like, this situation that happened from us came from deep pain around something similar happening to this person many times over intentionally. Um, and even though we had a relationship, it was just gone in a second because of the trauma that this person suffered in the past. And that's real. So I think also um, being the person who gets called out, just understanding that it probably happened out of a, a deep pain and, like, a historical trauma that this other person's experienced, can kind of help you like take a minute. Like we had, we had to wait to respond. Mm -hmm. Like we had to like take a minute because I was really upset. I was yeah. like deeply upset. And I didn't want to respond out of that place. Um, I didn't want to over apologize. And I also didn't want to respond out of anger. I wanted to like take a breath. Um, so even that just saying, maybe you could step in and say, hey, can we like take a pause and maybe come back to this. Can we get in a group chat or something and talk about this tomorrow once we've had time to cool off? But it was interesting to, in our experience. And we've had some other small things. I think that was the biggest one. Mm -hmm. But in every case, just reaching out, making that personal connection and, and acknowledging what you know your mistake, but also saying, like, how do we build something together so that, that I can learn without feeling like I'm going to lose my community? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are like, oh, like the person we talked to, um, you know, they were like, oh, yeah, it sucks when that happens. I've had that happen to me, and it's, it really sucks. And we're like, okay, so like, <laughs> you know, like, that's great. Like, let's build from that. And I think a lot of us, I think a lot of us are acting out of fear and vulnerability and trauma. And so 
we all need to understand that. We all need to, I guess, be the bigger person and just call for that. And a lot of times when you reach a handout, people will reach back um, because they're so used to things escalating and not being taken seriously. And um, so I think when they see someone who takes them seriously, but is also like, I, I want to do more than apologize here, um, usually it goes over really well. Yeah, I think modeling behavior is usually the best way to go. Or like maybe as a group coming together and coming up with some guidelines of like, okay, if something happens, here's what the group is asking the participants to do, the person who harmed and the person who was harmed, what we're asking you to do. Like not make it mandatory, of course, but like preaching this idea of restorative justice and giving people kind of a path of what that looks like because people just don't know. Yeah, and yeah. maybe if it's an online space working, sorry, to, just a quick idea, um, to create codes of conduct that um, have, this is something we've learned from our friends that they have built in, like they understand that conflict is going to happen, so how as a community do we handle that? And I think having a process in place is really helpful for people too, because a lot of times people feel if they're offended, no one's going to step in, nothing's going to happen, and they're going to be told they're being too sensitive, and that's a lot of times where the, the lashing out happens. So if you're in a space where you know that this is the process, you will definitely have someone take you seriously, and you can have a conversation about it, I think that alone helps quite a bit. Yeah, and I definitely want to echo the idea of restorative justice, which I know you've talked about before, mm -hmm. and it's definitely not an area of expertise for me, but it is something that I feel like is important because in a lot of communities, I feel, I'm thinking specifically about the music community, but I feel like a lot of times it's like something does, someone does something and then it's like, get that person out. Yeah. And obviously if it's, if it's a person like in a position of power, I think that's different, but if it's just a community member, when we get that person out, it's, they don't stop existing, they just yeah. go somewhere else and then they will most likely or probably do the same thing that they've been doing before. So it's like, I feel like if we don't actually get that person to be better somehow, and we're just like, no, this is, get that person out, they're like, okay, they're gone, they're no longer our problem before, our problem anymore, they're gonna be someone else's problem somewhere else. So I feel like restorative justice is very important. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we have time for one more question. <laughs> and here it is. Hi. Hi, Tanya. Um, I'm, I'm such a fan. So I'm fan crushing right now, thank you. Um, I have a question. Uh, so I am celebrating in 2018 my 20th anniversary being vegan. And uh, thank you. And also a shout out to future vegan rock stars too, lifelong since birth over here, little, little girls. Um, so I wanted to ask something that I've found to be a sensitive subject over the past couple decades, which is people speaking for me um, in that once they know you're vegan for them, then they want to speak for you. So this is probably a very common scenario. So you, you know, a lot of us uh, find our veganism effective incognito so we can blend and be in the world and just have a night to not have it announced, but you can order your food quietly. But then the, the person uh, says, oh, well, you know what? Oh yeah, she's vegan. So, you know, she, she can't have any of this and any of that and know that. And then, I mean, it has happened for 20 years. And so of all the things that I've been able to manage, that one's been a difficult one. I was hoping you could speak to it. I'm having flashbacks to my mom at any gathering we've been to, yes. coming in with the cupcakes. These are Paul's vegan cupcakes. <laughs> yeah. 
Andy. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know how to respond to that because mm. I feel like that happens a lot and it's really annoying. And you can address it, but it doesn't undo the thing that has mm. just happened. Like all of a sudden, now everyone knows you're the vegan in the room and that like taints everyone's perception of you and it taints yeah. the conversation that they have and they then they start telling you how little meat that they eat and like all of those things <laughs> um so yeah i honestly do not have a good response to that like i i can i will address it with people i'll be like let me speak for myself let me handle this how i want to handle it um but like in the moment i don't know i'm always just kind of like how dare you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if there's a, a repeat offender who is constantly doing that, you know, definitely pull that person aside um, and say, look, I get that you're trying to show your support, but also please don't ever do that again. <laughs> um, and then if they do it again, I, you know, I have definitely looked at them and be like, stop. <laughs> like, because I have my back to my mom. I love my mom, but she just, she struggles sometimes with the vegan thing. And she'll like, we'll open the menu and she's already being like, okay, you can have this and you can have this. And, and I'm like, I am an adult woman. I can order. <laughs> like, I know what a menu is. Um, thank you. And you know, sometimes I'll get a little bit firmer with her and push back and just be like, mm -mm, mm -mm, I, I got it. <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, I definitely try to pull that person aside and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah, that's really the best you can do. I do feel you because I, um, it's funny, I have that happen a lot, not just in my veganism, but with the podcast, because I don't tell everyone about it, especially my coworkers. I just had someone recently who was like, what's the name of it? What's the name of it? And he's like, you know, I can Google, I can find out. And I was like, I'm not consenting to that. I'm not telling you. <laughs> And it was because um, he, we did a screen share, uh, we were working on something, and I saw his backdrop was him with his family, his extended family, and there's a cop in the family. And we've like very recently spoken out against you know, law enforcement and like the institution of um, law enforcement. And so I was like, I have a really good working relationship with this person, and I don't want him to just go listen to an episode out of context and then lose that relationship. You know, it's not that I would hide my politics necessarily, but it's also like we're coworkers. We don't need to get into that. And we're remote coworkers at that. So I, I feel you, it's really hard to have, um, sometimes I don't want to be the vegan in the room, oftentimes actually. Um, and I just haven't found a really great way besides trying to tell repeat offenders to stop. But people think it's like, I mean, a lot of times people brag about the show. They're like, she's like, famous. And I'm like, all right, calm down. Because then people are like, well, what is it? Have I heard of it? And I'm like, no, you definitely haven't heard of it. <laughs> like, it's fine. Then it gets real awkward. It's especially awkward if I'm wearing my vegan famous tank top. Um, it's like sometimes I act like a diva, and then sometimes I'm like, no, I'm nobody. Don't worry about it. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think a lot of times it comes out of love. You know, I know with your mom, that's how it is. It's mm -hmm. like she like loves you, and so she yeah. wants people to know. But um, yeah, it's just really hard. I, I, I agree with Andy. There's not really a great way to like always prevent it. And once the once it's there, it's kind of there. Yeah. It just is what it is. I think you can also make a joke too. Like if someone if someone has already announced it and say they're not like a repeat offender or whatever, and so they didn't know not to do it, and they go like, "Oh, she's vegan," or she, oh, uh, telling the waiter like, "Oh, can you bring the vegan menu? What can she have?" And so it's like it the cat's out of the bag. It's already been announced, and you're sitting there like, 
oh God, here it comes. You know, sometimes just a joke and be like, yeah, I'm the vegan, but like, I'm not talking about it tonight. So mm-hmm. like, I don't want to hear about what you're eating and I won't talk about what I'm eating and just, you know, make a joke and try to get people to move on and hope for the best. Cause yeah, w- once it's happened, it's, you're just stuck. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I definitely think it's easier to, if, if they're coming out, if they're, if they're doing it because they care about you versus like the coworker thing, which is harder to navigate. Yeah. It's like, I, yeah. I feel like they're, hopefully going to be more receptive when you're like, hey, can you not, can you not do that? If they're like, oh, but it's just because I care about you. And you can acknowledge that. It's like, you know that they're just trying to be helpful. And you're just like, I got this. Been doing this for two decades. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think that brings us to the end of our 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 podcast here. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you you. so much. All right. The Bearded Vegans and the Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack. Our little experiment worked. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. I'm afraid we're probably closed out there now. You might be able to scarf some food off of people if you didn't get a chance to eat yet today, but... Um, Thank you once again. It's been wonderful to have you come to the 10th annual Chicago Vegan Mania. And we hope you have an all wonderful, a wonderful rest of the weekend. Thank you again. Thank you for coming. Drive safely. Hope to see you at one of these other events. And let's hear it once again more for the vegan war- vegan- <laughs> the bearded vegans and the vegan warrior princesses attack. So we hope you enjoyed that live collaborative episode with Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack from Chicago Vegan Mania. I I hope that you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed doing it. And again, if anyone's out there wants to somehow fit it into their schedules and our schedules that they can bring us out to an event. We would love to do them. Doing these lives of live events has been really awesome. And, and we definitely appreciate all of the opportunities that we've been given so far. So yeah, obviously if you have any comments or questions about anything that occurred in the episode, feel free to send those over to the bearded vegans at gmail.com or hit us up on the Instagram, hit us up on the Facebook at the bearded vegans and yeah, Andy, anything, anything else? Well, I can tell you where I'm going to be in the next couple, couple of weeks. If you want, Andy, where are you going to be in the next couple of weeks? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> October 27th, I'll be at the Texas veggie fair in Dallas, Texas. It's always a fun one. Uh, November 3rd, I'll be at the Tampa Bay VegFest in Tampa, Florida. November 10th, that's our live podcast at Atlanta VegFest. And then my last, as of right now, my last event of the year, November 18th, the Space Coast VegFest in Cocoa, Florida. On the moon. On the moon. (laughs) And yeah, so any of those events, you can come find me and sometimes Paul behind the Compassion Company table. That's my little vegan clothing line there. So look for the unicorn t-shirts and the green tablecloth, the the lime green tablecloth. And <laughs> you've gotten a lot so, of angry emails. <laughs> I mean, people are like, I found like a, I don't know. I'm trying to think of another, an emerald green tablecloth, and it wasn't you. <laughs> it was the Humane League. Uh, <laughs> all right, we're off the rails, Paul. Yes, Andy. So much of our this episode that we we just did was a lot about surviving the holidays. And I think one tip that we left out is that sometimes 
you know, your relatives are just so overbearing and you can't escape the room and you feel like you can't leave and set that boundary. So I find that it's important to have like a little little mantra, a little something that you repeat to yourself and chant to yourself over and over again in your head. Sort of sort of like Serenity Now in Seinfeld, but I found one that works a little bit better than that yeah. is to repeat the following seven words. We are the Bearded Vegans signing off. Ellen. Josh. That's it. And Josh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you want to say and Josh? And Josh. Oh, you mean like definitively. And Josh. (laughs) (laughs)